What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. Here's what's ahead. Stocks are up nicely again today. We're at session highs right now, up 600 points. And this is the fifth straight day of gains for the Dow. We'll look at this turn from an eight-week losing streak and what it tells us both about the Fed and about the market's next moves. And retail is absolutely rocking today. Most of the S&P's biggest gainers are consumer names. The hard-hit dollar stocks rebounding huge. Did the market overreact to Walmart and Target? And what's the real takeaway from retail results? While that picture seems mixed, the housing picture, pretty clear. The real estate market is slowing and fast. We'll get the latest on the state of housing coming up. But let's begin with today's games. We're pretty much at session highs, Mr. Chu. So they were losses at one point for certain parts of the market. So it's been a real turnaround, Kelly. And to your point, the Dow looking to snap that eight-week losing streak. It would be a snap of a seven-week losing streak this week if we can keep this up for both the NASDAQ composite and the S&P 500. But we are now near session highs. For that, the Dow is now up about 600 points, 32,718, up nearly 2% there, north of 2% gains for the S&P, which reclaims that 4,000 mark up about 90 points and the composite index up 345 points again near session highs we were at one point actually down 28 yes it's modest but down 28 points right after the opening bell for the composite index so again a decent sized turnaround and we are now very strong we'll see if that momentum can hold one part of the area or one area of the market that is continuing to show strength and has been for months at this point now since the pandemic lows is crude oil. We are now above $114 for U.S. benchmark crude prices. World benchmark, benchmark Brent crude prices north of 117 almost 3 to 3.5% 3 gains here. But natural gas is the big story. Now above $9.30 per MMBTU. The reason why that's important is we're talking near 14-year highs for natural gas going into the summer season when people consume a lot more power for things like air conditioning and what else. But that move higher is catching a lot of people by surprise here, maybe given what we've seen. But energy stocks as a result up about one and a third percent. And then the stock of the day from a consumer staple standpoint, it's more thematic, but it's indicative of a large cap consumer staples company that may not be as equipped to deal with inflation or so says analysts at UBS, which have now taken Kraft Heinz from a neutral rating to the equivalent of a sell. They've also cut their price target to $34 from a prior 40. And what they think is that inflation will impact Kraft Heinz a little bit more than some of its competitors. And Kelly, this is something we've been talking about kind of thematically for a while, that Kraft Heinz is more susceptible to consumers trading down to private label products that compete with their brand name products. So all of that is factoring in one of the reasons why perhaps Kraft Heinz is showing 6% weakness in a very big update today, Kel. I'll send you things back over to you. You just want to get a Kirkland plug in. I know you do. I don't, I, you know, I, I, don't, I, I like Kraft Heinz ketchup. I, don't I do necessi- too. I don't necessarily trade down for ketchup. Same. That's the one thing I will stick to. I, I agree. This is the one where I go, that's the one thing I always and buy. And Kraft mac and cheese. I don't think my daughter will eat anything besides yeah. mac and cheese. She doesn't like the 
fancy stuff, only craft. Exactly. Dom, thank you very much. We appreciate it. All right, the market is trying to stabilize here after an eight-week losing streak. And my next guest says inflation, not recession, remains the biggest risk for investors. He's sticking with large-cap, dividend-paying stocks. Joining me now is John Augustine, the chief investment officer of Huntington Private Bank. John, welcome. Uh, You think dividend payers are going to offer enough inflation protection? We do. We think consistent earnings, dividends are, are going to continue to be the way to go. Even though we are seeing some growth come up this this week, we still think those dividend indexes, Kelly, if you think about it, some of those dividend indexes are only down 2% this year. That's constructive in the kind of year we're having for stocks. What about Kraft Heinz, though? I mean, this is one of the big go-to places for dividend payers, and yet consumer staples have had a really rough stretch lately. Yeah, but that's one of those ones now that's perceived as not consistent. You talked about it yourself. You and Dom saying potentially they can't keep up with inflation. Personally, I got to admit, full disclosure, I'm more of a Kirkland guy. (laughs) But anyways, with respect to Kraft Heinz, maybe they don't have what it takes to keep up with inflation. Look at Cisco Foods. They're on the other side of that today. We just added that from our equity team. What else have you been adding here? What stocks are you definitely picking up? Well, we've been in the REIT sector. So REITs, real estate, we continue to look at as more or less utility infielders. Then the services on the consumer discretionary side, people getting out for services now, the Hiltons, the Booking.coms, et cetera. So what we see is this big shift second half of the year, energy earnings decline, consumer discretionary led by services increase. That's what our equity team's trying to get ready for. It's interesting you say real estate is a place you're looking, or REITs, I should say, because you'd seem to have the headwinds of a slowing real estate market and rising rates. Granted, the slowdown seems to be more on the residential side, but explain how they can you know, compete slash do well in this kind of environment. Yeah, kind of three things that our equity team's looking at. Number one is dividends. We like dividends right now. Number two is an inflation hedge, because as you talked about, you t- some of the commodity prices, energy, just aren't cooperating yet. And then the potential for capital gains out of those stocks, some of the beaten down stocks, think assignment properties. So it's kind of three things we're looking at with respect to REITs. And finally, give us some names and the other sectors that maybe we talk less about. And where does energy screen for you? I mean, today, those are all of the top names in the S&P 500 trading at record or multi-year or certainly 52-week highs. Yeah, what our equity team does is they they put their energy positions in last year. They've held them. So now with that growth this year, they're overweight. So think of EOG Resources, think of Valero, think of Schlumberger, think of Chevron and Exxon. Those are the plays they're doing. They're trying to be broad across the energy sector with their representation. They're holding those positions, not necessarily adding to them right now. So those are some of the areas we're looking at. All right, John, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for your clarity today. Appreciate it. Thanks. John Augustine with Huntington Private Bank. Got a news alert in the bond market. The seven-year right in that sweet spot. We had 10s lower this morning, Rick, but then the 30s. What are are we seeing for the seven-year auction today? We are seeing basically empty plates because investors ate pretty much every scrap of seven years the Treasury offered up in their auction buffet. I gave the auction an A+. We're talking 42 billion seven years, completing the final leg of 137 billion of Treasury coupon supply. The yield, sevens are wild, 2.777. 
Uh, the one issue mark was trading around 280, which means lower yield, better price, and that's good if you're selling treasuries. Uh, pretty much the seven year came back in 09, and there's some metrics here that are stellar. The 2.69 bid to cover the best since March of 2020, 77.9 on indirects. Those are those foreign interests we're also nervous about to continue buying. That's the best since early 2018. Uh, the direct bidders was the only fly in the ointment, and even that couldn't knock it off from an A+. 15.8 was actually the lightest since November 2020. But here's the stat that is unbelievable. Dealers only took 6.4% of that auction, meaning investors took the rest. I do not have a lower number for dealers. Uh, Remember, we've had a lot of green as of late in the equity markets, and all of a sudden today, as that auction was about ready to button up, we see yields continue to rise on everything except for a two-year note, which is hovering around unchanged. I guess what I'm saying here is, now that the green is back in equities, you might look for the green to go back in terms of yield moving higher, price moving lower. This is going to be a very important close for treasuries and exactly how much profit or loss those seven-year notes have when they do settlement next week is going to be very important for the rest of the market. Kelly, back to you. Green there, green everywhere. Rick, thank you very much. The NASDAQ is at session highs now with a better than 3% gain, as you can see there, back up to 11,785. The Dow is up 618 points right now. And maybe retail earnings had something to do with that because we've had a very different tone in results over the past couple of days, helping to lift sentiment after last week's retail wreck. Macy's, Williams-Sonoma, Dollar Tree, Dollar General. Look at these double-digit gains behind me. Dollar Tree is now up 22%. Macy's up 18% today. They all posted beats on both the top and bottom line. And this was a day after we saw positive results from Nordstrom and Dick's Sporting Goods. Macy's in particular came as a surprise. The company raised its full-year earnings guidance and reaffirmed its sales guidance. Our next guest was bullish going into the numbers and says it's still a value here. Joining us now is Cowan Senior Retail Analyst Oliver Chen. Great to have you with us, Oliver. It's still a buy for you? Yes, it is. We're excited about the print today. The customer is going out. So the big story for the consumer next is that going out trade and those apparel items such as dresses, cosmetics. We like Ulta as well. And we think Macy's is inexpensive at these levels of PE below five times, free cash flow yield, dividend yield, as well as the real estate and a company that's modernizing across inventory management, speed, e-commerce, loyalty, and acquiring new customers. So there's a lot that's working. That being said, Kelly, the consumer is definitely at a crossroads. Inflation, anniversary stimulus, the lower end consumer, those are all risk factors to pay attention to as well. Sure. And we, you know, I just want to point out that we have the restaurant stocks up strongly as well. So Bloomin' Brands is now up almost 25 percent in just two sessions. So did we reset too much last week or when we heard about Walmart and Target's results? And should these stock moves be taken in that context when they've still been underperforming year to date? Well, stocks did pull back a lot. And what we have is a consumer that's still there in terms of low unemployment. We do have a consumer at the lower end, lower than 50,000 household income that is definitely pulling out and being more considered. What happened at Walmart and Target, a lot of the home goods, patio, big and bulky, outdoor, um, those were very hard to change quickly as the consumer looked for other items. So reorientating inventory uh, will be a task across the industry for different reasons. But what's been really resonating is the consumer going out again, 
dresses and other apparel that's related to that has been a positive. Uh, the consumer is still there, um, so it's something we're watching. Apologies, I don't know if the dollar stores are part of your coverage, but do you pick up a trade-down effect there? In other words, are they rallying for a bad reason or are they rallying for a good reason, which is that amongst their core consumer, discretionary spending is still holding up well? Yeah, Kelly, what we're seeing is consumers are trading down to private brands, even in the Kohl's portfolio, private versus national brands. Kirkland is a fan favorite for me, too. I really <laughs> look for that brand, and I love the jewelry and the food and the wine. Um, but consumers are looking for exceptional value, and that lower-end consumer is getting very squeezed gas and energy. So they're looking to stretch their dollar, and that will be a very real thing that will continue. And we're anniversary stimulus, which has been very difficult. At the same time, Kelly, um, consumers love brands, too. Um, Macy's called out some of their uh, big brands, such as Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph and others. Hmm. And we like LVMH, too. So there's a lot of bifurcation. It really isn't one size fits all in terms of these cross currents that we're seeing now. Yeah, I have a shout out to Costco. I'm wearing their earrings right now. Shout out to my mother-in-law for hooking me up. But I guess what is the read through then from Walmart and Target where yeah. both of them came out consistently, even Amazon, right? We see one narrative there and maybe it's just that we are extrapolating too much from the post-pandemic reset. But even Abercrombie, which was down sharply the other day, you know, these places that have yeah. had high inventory relative to sales and yet a batch of retailers the past couple of days, it seemed to not have that issue at all. Yeah, I think it really depends on inventory agility and speed at which you can manage that. Um, but Walmart and Target are world-class omni retailers, uh, which will continue to be, and the consumer is still there. Um, so we're optimistic for the long term, but not everybody has uh, fared equally well in terms of agilely managing inventory. Even today at Macy's, um, the home trends slowed faster than they expected, but other parts of the portfolio made up for this as well as lower markdowns. So there's really a lot of um, strong alpha and personal attention to each of these companies in terms of how to manage through this change. That being said, the top lines have been relatively robust. So it's been mainly a gross margin story where gross margins have been hit by inflation, supply chain, and taking markdowns if your inventory was not well positioned. So final question, we are going to hear from not only Costco after the bell, uh, but we're going to hear from Gap, I believe, uh, some of the other mall retailers as well. Are they now going to be on the flip side where retail has run up so much into these results that the bar is now substantially higher? Well, at the Gap division, uh, we're specifically looking at Old Navy. They've had some management changes there. Um, so that's something to observe in terms of inventory and, and the right kind of value. Also, they've changed their business with inclusive sizing, which is a great long-term thing, but it's not easy to do. Our pick this afternoon is Ulta. They report soon, and it's a beauty retailer. It's In many ways, it's like Home Depot for women in terms of what they offer, skincare, hair care, investing in your face, self-care, um, that will continue to be a big theme. You know, within the hybrid workforce, your face is so important too. Uh, so we prefer beauty. Beauty is relatively recession resistant as well. Uh, thinking about lipstick and hair care and skin care uh, and how that's so important uh, throughout. Yeah, Home Depot for women. I mean, I like Home Depot, but that's just me. Oliver, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thanks Great for your time here. today. Oliver Chen, as we await more retail results this afternoon. Coming up, Inflation Nation. We're live in Iowa to look at how Americans are dealing with the rising cost of living. And we'll bring you the bold call the CEO of Deer is making about the future of farming. 
Plus, one of Silicon Valley's most successful VC firms is out with a dire warning to startups looking to survive. We'll tell you what it is and which public companies are already ahead of the curve. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on markets with the Dow up 610 points, the Nasdaq up 3%, and the 10-year yield down to 276. We're back after this. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. A strong market picking up steam this afternoon and consumer discretionary is leading the way with the sector showing its biggest gain since March of 2020, up more than 5 percent. Dollar Tree, Dollar General, which we reference, those are some of the biggest gainers. Norwegian and Caesars, though, are also up there with reopening trades performing quite strong. Now, we've had a bunch of headlines from corporate America about how inflation is impacting their earnings this season. Now let's get an up-close and personal look at just how inflation is hitting the heartland, from families to businesses and even farms. Brian Sullivan is in Davenport, Iowa, with more for us. Brian? I'm in Davenport with Dave, just walking by. Big CNBC viewer, right? Big time. Big time, except lately because you bought Snowflake and now you have no money left. Snowflake and... uh... Alibaba. It's all about energy, Dave. You know that. I bought Chevron. There you go. CEO Mike Worth went to my high school. That's there, that, there's an investable reason. Colorado. Inflation changing, by the way, the way that you invest or handle your money, Dave? Uh, it's just making my money disappear more. There we go. All right, Dave, thank you. Thanks for watching right. CNBC, my man. You. Maybe I'll see awesome. you tonight. All right, thanks. Anyway, so we're just... Hey, we got CNBC viewers all across the country, Kelly. Listen, Dave, the consumer is the economy. What is it? 75% of the economy is the consumer. If the consumer starts to crack because of inflation, the economy starts to crack. If the economy starts to crack, the stock market starts to crack. Oh, wait, that's already happened. And that's what we're seeing. By the way, and Oliver Chen, I think, nailed it in your previous segment, Kelly. He talked about really the, the, the lower income folks. It's a regressive tax inflation. We went out to a truck stop on I-80 out here, crossroads of America, and talked to people about gas prices and inflation. I can see where it's hurting a lot of owner operators right now. It's it's pretty tough on them. A lot of companies, small companies, five, ten trucks have been closing their doors because they just can't afford the cost of running anymore. I think it's about 30% jump last few months, and it's just... I'm more careful with what to buy. Before, I didn't even think twice about, oh, I get this butter, like premium one. But now I just go down a little bit, you know. Maybe it's like a store brand. So, Kelly, the price of diesel's gone from 317 a gallon to 553 a gallon. 
in one year. And all that gets passed along. So tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time, we're going to have a special, Inflation USA. We're talking about the tugboat business. We don't think about that very much on the Mississippi right over here, the consumer. We're going to interview, I know you got John Deere, by the way, their investor day today, their biggest competitor, CNH, their CEO, Scott Wine, is going to fly in tonight and join us live. We'll talk to the head of a truck stop. It's going to be a full view on inflation, hopefully some optimism as well, Kelly, you know, because we want two pairs of those Costco earrings. That's, Not just one pair. That's all right. What's going on, Rudy? Rudy's Tacos. Supposed right. to be pretty good here. What did you mean when you told that guy who it seemed like you had just run into that you were going to see him tonight? Well, he literally stood over here and he's like, are you the CNBC loudmouth or whatever, something like this? And I was like, <laughs> yes, that's me. And so literally in the, we're just chatting and we're going to be doing our show live from here. Nice. So the restaurant that's letting us in is doing us a solid. So I'm going to do them a solid. So anybody that's kind to us and CNBC, I'm saying, come on in, get some beer, get some wings, pay the restaurant back because we're going to show them our kindness. They're letting us there for free. And love so I'm that. trying to bring them customers. That's and, uh, awesome. Got to do it, right? I mean, that's pay it forward. It's like Maybe a town square. Maybe I'll go to Rudy's square. Tacos here and get some lunch. <laughs> we'll meet you there. How you doing? Wishful thinking. <laughs> he lurks. <laughs> Brian, <laughs> thank you very Scaring much. people in Davenport. Yeah. See you tonight. Our Brian right. Sullivan, we're really looking forward to that. He mentioned Deer, and from Main Street to Wall Street, Deer's Investor Day is underway, and the CEO out with kind of a dire warning about the state of farming right now. Seema Modi is here with all of the details. Seema. Yeah, CEO John May, he doesn't talk often on the public stage, but at today's Investor Day, he laid out the challenges that farmers are facing right now. The days of abundant resources and farming inputs is over. Labor, fertilizer, and crop protection inputs, just to name a few, are all growing in scarcity and they're increasing in cost. John is betting that these challenges will make Deere's newest technology appealing to farmers that are looking for ways to cut costs. The enhanced see and spray machinery that distributes fertilizers and herbicides more efficiently, therefore reducing the input by two thirds. Uh, new software and data analytics that they say can help farmers be more strategic about how they plant and harvest. There are 300,000 connected ag machines today. Deere's goal is to triple that number by 2026. Uh, Mario Gabelli's firm has been a longtime investor in Deere. They tell me they have a $215 million position in the stock. Gabelli's portfolio manager, Brian Sponheimer, who is in Illinois for this investor day, he says bottom line for farmers is that fields need to be planted and harvested every year. If there is a way to reduce costs and increase efficiency, they will explore it. Take a look at shares of Deere. They are rebounding off the lows hit on Friday following that disappointing earnings report, up about 10% just this week. Kelly. Do you think his comments then actually helped this time? I think the comments that here's where we're spending our money on this new technology and why this will actually address the challenges that farmers are facing is one thing investors are digesting. There was also a call hosted by Jeffries recently with the management at Deere following that earnings report where they provided some level of confidence to investors that the second half of this year, they're going to see those supply chain pressures ease. That's what they're hoping. Wouldn't that be nice? That's what everybody's hoping. Absolutely. Seema, thank you very much, Seema Modi. Still ahead, if you're trying to protect your portfolio from inflation, we've got some dividend darlings for some steady income. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with Boeing, Nike, and Home Depot leading the way today. Only two stocks are in the green, Merck and J&J. We're back after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. 
impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Strong session here as the Dow pieces together a five-day win streak at the highs. We were up 650, and we're just off that level right now. Consumer discretionary is leading the way, but every sector is in the green today. Consumer discretionary up more than 5% for its best day since the pandemic lows. Here are some of the movers this hour. The EV makers are firmly in the green. Lucid positive for the month now. Tesla on track for its best day since January, although still pacing for its fifth down month in the past six. But Tesla is now up 7.5%. It's back above $700 a share. And Broadcom is officially buying VMware for $61 billion in cash and stock, one of the biggest tech acquisitions of all time behind Microsoft's pending deal to buy Activision and Dell's purchase of EMC six years ago. Uh, both shares slightly higher VM much more so after the pop earlier this week, and they're both up about 3% today. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Some details are beginning to emerge as officials work to compile a timeline of what exactly happened and when in Tuesday's school massacre in Texas. The New York Times quotes a Texas law official as saying, when the shooter first entered the building, he exchanged gunfire with two officers who were both injured. That official also says it appears that most, if not all, of those killed were shot within the first few minutes after the shooter barricaded himself in a classroom for more than an hour. Some parents outside the school during that time were frustrated that police didn't go in sooner. On Capitol Hill, Senate Republicans blocked consideration of a domestic terrorism bill, preventing a debate on the nation's gun policies. The Democrats' leader in the Senate says he had hoped the measure could be a starting point for negotiations. And tonight on the news, how the NRA retains power in Washington, even though it is now being outspent by gun control groups. And Ray Liotta, best known for his breakout role as a mobster in Goodfellas, has died at the age of 67. A spokesman says he died in his sleep while shooting a movie in the Dominican Republic. Kelly, back to you. And I learned he was adopted, Ty. Is that right? Very interesting. Yeah, we'll learn a lot more about him, and we're sad to hear of his passing. Tyler Matheson, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Still ahead, the tight labor market is benefiting one demographic by far the most. We'll tell you which one, how much more that group is getting paid, and whether job turnover could be peaking. But first, a CNBC investigation finds the metaverse has been hit with fraud, leaving investors thousands of dollars lost and little recourse for getting it back. That's next.
Welcome back. We all know the metaverse is a virtual world where you can go shopping or hang out with friends. And while the term was first coined 30 years ago by a science fiction author, it's fast becoming a real world investment opportunity. But as investors we spoke to across the country have learned, virtual reality can leave your investment virtually wiped out. Here's Eamon Javers with Stealing the Metaverse. It seemed like the possibilities could be endless and ever-changing. I thought, wow, what an awesome opportunity. It was prime real estate. Welcome to the Metaverse, a new digital world where users can attend private parties, concerts, gaming events, and even buy digital real estate that can be developed and monetized. The platforms have names like The Sandbox, Decentraland, and Superworld. But as we found, fraud has hit this new digital frontier. In rural Maine, a theft online. I remember you coming into the bedroom. I can't remember what time. <laughs> it was really late. Saying, all our land got stolen. Kasha and Dick DeRosi pioneered the digital frontier until their land was snatched away. I was so sad. You were up all night. And Researching it yeah. and just stressing over. Yeah. As a nurse, Kasha devotes her career to helping others, a passion she wanted to meditize by developing an educational game for medical students. I can't even measure the amount of hours I put into that. Countless hours and $12,000 of savings for this plot of land in the sandbox. With one property secured, she ventured out to explore other virtual worlds. I thought, well, let me check out Decentraland, because I really haven't looked at that. But in her search for Decentraland, she says she mistakenly clicked on a phishing link that took her to an imposter site. And I didn't even realize it at the time. Because the site looked legit, she connected her digital wallet called MetaMask to the scam site. That gave hackers access to her land, and within a matter of minutes... No warning. Everything just gone. The couple is not the only one to have digital dreams dashed. In my mind, I was almost like it sounds like buying a brownstone in Manhattan in, you know, 1910. Right, left, right, left. Tracy Karlinski, an online fitness instructor, purchased sandbox land near the music icon Snoop Dogg. He talked about having private parties, interacting with his fans, holding concerts. It aligned with, with what I was looking for. She says she lost her nearly $20,000 property to a phishing site posing as the real deal. Normally when you log into your account, you can see your little piece of land and it literally just said, you have no land. I was confused, I was upset, I was having a panic attack. But she's not ready to log off the metaverse just yet. I don't wanna say I'm done for forever. Neither is Carrie Lee Miller. It could happen to anyone and it is happening to the most sophisticated investors. This venture capitalist owned a slice of the virtual universe for a grand total of 24 hours. This little box is the properties. She says she also clicked on a link that took her to a phishing site. You feel violated. I've had something stolen from me. But that didn't scare her off. She's even gathered a group of investors to build a metaverse campus in the sandbox. Know that the platforms behind these infrastructures haven't figured out everything. Animoca Brands, a major blockchain venture capital firm, owns the sandbox and invests in Decentraland. 
Celebrities like Mark Cuban and Ashton Kutcher have invested in OpenSea, the marketplace where these virtual lands are sold. And tech giants Microsoft and SoftBank have poured money into MetaMask, the digital wallet. But there's a huge illegitimate business as well. We found phishing pages for sale on the dark web where just $400 lands you a MetaMask phishing wallet promising thousands in return. But Taylor Monahan, MetaMask's product lead, is looking to change that. Ultimately, what we want the outcome to be is if you lose your funds, there's a path forward where you can recover those funds. She says that's why MetaMask has teamed up with a digital asset recovery company to investigate scams for consumers. But ultimately, she says the losses are not MetaMask's responsibility. So MetaMask, as like the wallet provider, has not refunded anyone for their lost funds. In an ideal world, we would like to see nobody ever lose funds. And in the worst case scenarios where they do, they have the ability to recover those funds. MetaMask is not the only one in the space that's being hit by these. Any big product is. We reached out to The Sandbox, to Centraland, and OpenSea to ask about how secure their platforms really are. OpenSea says it's halting sales on items reported stolen. Both Sandbox and Decentraland say they're working to remove imposter sites and have distributed educational resources on theft prevention to their users. Now, we also reached out to these platforms' investors. Mark Cuban was the only one to respond. He said these phishing scams aren't unique to crypto. They affect a lot of big companies, too, Kelly. Eamon, where's law enforcement on this? Because if $20,000 worth of my real property was stolen from me, the police would be the first place I'd call. Well, look, this is very cutting edge and new for law enforcement, too. But with the digital economy, they do have ways of tracking these frauds and these thefts. And we're seeing that on the top end. When you see a huge crypto theft, law enforcement does have the ability to go in there, track it on the blockchain and find out who did it. But the volume of these is enormous and under a certain dollar amount. I wouldn't expect a whole lot of assistance from law enforcement at this point because there's so many of these and it costs so much to track them down. It might you might not just not be able to get law enforcement attention to all these individual cases. Yeah, it's why it was uh, hopeful to at least think that some of these investors are sophisticated enough to be able to build their own ways of trying to get recourse. Yeah, Eamon, it's a brand great new reporting. World. As always, we appreciate it very much. Thanks, Kelly. Our Eamon Javers in Washington. Coming up, the real estate sector underperforming this year as mortgage rates jump higher. And with this week's dismal data, is there more pain ahead for both investors and sellers? We'll dig into that next. Welcome back. Mortgage rates have been climbing sharply with the 30-year fixed rate over 5% now, and that's been putting pressure across the real estate sector. But there are some names that have held up better than others. Christina Partsinevelis has today's Sectornomics. Christina? Well, for much of 2022 so far, this sector has outperformed the S&P 500. That's until last month or so when sharp declines have put it roughly in line with the broader market. And I want us to take a look now at opportunities that could be out there. So we ran a screen looking at stocks in the sector with positive performance in the past 12 months or so. Then we narrowed it down to the names above average or with above average dividend yields. In this case, we're looking at anything just above 3%. And the results are in. The top spot goes to data and records management firm Iron Mountain, whose dividend yield is around 4.8%. Then we've also got three retail-focused names like Realty Income, Regency Centers, and Kimco. And then I want to end on extra space storage, which has been one of the sector's 
more disappointing players this year, down about 24% thus far, but still holding on to games over the past 12 months. So, Kelly, even in a sluggish sector, of course, there's are, there are still options for investors looking for steady income. You just got to dig for it. There's always opportunity, gold in them, the hills. Especially in this volatility. True. Christina, thank you very much. Thanks. Let's stick with real estate. If the recent data has shown us anything, it's that the housing market is slowing fast. Housing starts this week, weaker than expected. Single family starts hitting the lowest level since October of 2021. Uh, you can see that behind me here. Yesterday, mortgage purchase applications fell to the slowest pace since May of 2020, going back two years now. Homebuilder sentiment, the weakest since June 2020. All components seeing declines from April. New home sales missed estimates by a wide margin while the previous month was revised lower. That really woke everybody up. And then today, pending home sales dropped to a two-year low in April, the sixth straight monthly decline. So does all of this indicate a major cooldown ahead in what's been a red-hot market? Let's welcome in Danielle Hale. She's chief economist for Realtor.com. Danielle, what can Realtor.com uh, tell us? What additional light can you shed on what's happening in the market here? Thanks, Kelly. Well, in our data, we've shown that uh, the cooldown in sales is being seen in the real estate market by the metrics that we track, and that is the number of homes available for sale to buyers has increased, with buyers a little bit choosier as costs are rising and more sellers trying to take advantage of the hot real estate market. We're seeing the number of options available to uh, to buyers increase for the first time in the last three years. Now, to put that into context. We're still at a much lower level uh, than we were before the pandemic. So the number of homes for sale is still relatively scarce. But this is the first time we've seen a substantial increase in the last three years. And so the market is shifting in a big way. So we know sales activity is slowing. Inventory is coming up somewhat. Are prices going to drop? You know, I think that's a question that's on everyone's minds. We know that prices are now higher than they were. Uh, they've risen pretty much consistently over the past 10 years. That's so a big, huge run up in prices. Last year and the year before, lower mortgage rates helped cushion the blow of higher prices. So buyers could navigate those higher prices with no problem because actually monthly payments were dropping even though prices were rising because of lower mortgage rates. Fast forward to today and we're in the opposite environment where mortgage rates are rising, adding extra pain to the to the cost of higher housing. Um, so we're seeing that buyers are under a lot of pressure right now. Monthly costs for the typical mortgage are up 50% relative to a year ago. That's causing buyers to think twice before jumping in and slowing the overall sales pace. Still, I wonder how much pent-up demand there is for housing because I know friends who just can't buy a house even now. They're still being outbid. They're still being outbid by all cash offers and you know people waiving uh, the inspections and, and things like that. And I'm talking about people who are looking at homes this weekend. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. So our data do show that home price growth hasn't slowed down that much, especially on the asking price side of things where, where actually sellers are asking for higher prices. Homes continue to sell quickly. And as I mentioned, even though we're seeing the number of homes available for sale grow, it's still much lower than it was before the pandemic. So the housing market is still very competitive, but we are seeing signs that the winds are changing, shifting back in a buyer-friendly direction. And interestingly, because 72% of sellers are also planning to buy a home, What's good for the buyer may also surprisingly be good for the seller. That's true because mortgage rates have been working against them right now. Danielle, thanks for all your insight. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Danielle Hale, Realtor.com. Coming up, average hourly earnings climbing steadily over the past year to almost $32 now. 
Bank of America took a deep dive into the workers seeing the biggest pay increases. We have the details and why the turnover rate could be stabilizing. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Despite rising inflation and record high gas prices, the consumer is still spending, and that could be attributed both to stimulus savings and higher wages. In fact, new proprietary data from Bank of America shows the rise in net wages actually outpaced inflation last month, and it's millennials and lower-income workers seeing the biggest pay bumps. Joining me now is David Tinsley, senior economist at the Bank of America Institute. Great to have you here, David. And you were able to kind of give a broader measure of earnings. Is that right? Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. So basically, uh, Bank of America obviously has a lot of customers. And in this database, we're using 9 million of our customers with anonymized data, of course. And we're looking at pay rises uh, year on year in that data set. And we're finding the net annual rise of about 9.2%. So, yeah, as you're saying in your intro, a bit above inflation of 8.3%. So some real pay growth across the uh, across the data set. That said, even if there's 9% growth and 8% inflation, that's not going to feel that great to people. So you can understand why sentiment has kind of been as dim as it has. But where are you seeing the most hopeful signs, the biggest uh, pay gains? Well, you know, this is really interesting. If you look at the age distribution split of that data, you see Gen Z and millennials receiving really strong rises. So for the Gen Z, it's, it's close to 20% for millennials, just above 10%. And then when you cut the data just to look at people who have changed the firm, you can see that the average pay rise across the whole data set is around 20%. Wow. So very strong, very strong increases for people who are prepared to uh, move jobs. Basically, you want to be young and move jobs, and then you're going to get that big rise. Wow. All right. So what are your takeaways from this as we debate the Fed's next steps? Because this is the key for inflation and the economy. In in some ways, the labor market is too tight. Uh, What does the data tell us? That's a good point. So basically, what our data shows is that it certainly has been very tight if you look at the number of people moving jobs every month. What we're seeing in our data, and I think this is borne out by some other data sources out there currently, is a whiff of calling off in the labour market. There's some sense that the the job change data we're looking at is eased back. Uh, But the big caveat I would really need to underline is this is easing back from white hot levels. So we're really looking at a labour market that maybe going, going, going to hot from white hot, if you like. And so what would you say, because, for example, you find that those earning below $50,000 have seen an average pay rise of 11.5%, which is great. Those with incomes above, less than an 8% gain. So a lot of this has really paid off for lower-income workers. We're now starting to see signs of startup companies laying off workers, especially technology companies slowing hiring and things like that. Um, when people want to extrapolate that to, say, a drop in the monthly payrolls report, Does your data support that or suggest that that's jumping too much to that conclusion? I think that's jumping the gun. And the reason is partly because of this rotation we're seeing in consumers from spending on goods during the pandemic to spending on services. And 
as that rotation occurs, there are always going to be some losers in that rotation in terms of businesses. And I suspect some of the job announcements, the negative stories you've seen, are from people, for people who weren't counting on that rotation or maybe slightly overdid it in terms of building up the, the labour base during the, uh, the pandemic period. I don't think you can read across into an underlying deterioration yet. Our data says it might be easing, but really from very strong levels. And finally, I don't know, I, I can't tell from behind you if you're work from home or not, but anything you can tell us about the impact work from home is having and its likeliness to stick around? That's a good point. I mean, there isn't a lot in the data I've presented to, uh, in the report that would, uh, would illustrate that. I think what I've... Can, I can say is that, you know, just from my own experience, is that uh, I think some partial kind of... Uh, it's basically, I think, there is some rebound in services that are indicative of the return to office as well. Hmm. But there's still some residual, I think, stickiness there. Yeah, and some stickiness uh, that, you know, we certainly pick up on in terms of what employees want to do right now. David, it's been great to have you today. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. David Tinsley with Bank of America. Up next, one VC firm is warning this is tech's crucible moment and calling on founders to cut costs. Those details after this quick break. Dow's off session highs, but we're still up about 570 points. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back, everybody. Venture capital firm Sequoia out with another dire warning, trading, quote, death spiral for 2020's Black Swan in its latest memo to portfolio companies. Kate Rooney is here with all the details. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Sequoia's advice to founders this time, preserve cash, cut costs, or you're not going to make it through this slowdown. I got a copy of Sequoia's 52-page presentation to founders. People really tend to pay attention to these memos. It's been one of the most successful Silicon Valley firms over the decades, and Sequoia calling this moment a crucible moment for founders. It doesn't see the economy back, uh, bouncing back, as they say, anytime soon, warning startups to tighten their belts. In the meantime, we had Alfred Lin, Roloff Botha, some of the other big-name Sequoia partners talking about inflation and geopolitical conflicts, limiting right now what policymakers can do to step in. They say, unlike 2020, this correction won't be followed by a V-shaped recovery. Sequoia, uh, Sequoia also warns of what they call a death spiral. Companies that they describe as growing too fast without slowing spending. You can see it on the chart there. They say growth at all costs is now over. Investors are rewarding discipline instead. And it's the latest sign, Kelly, of austerity in tech. We had Meta, Uber, freezing hiring, Robinhood and Netflix with layoffs. And the job cuts are now starting to pile up at private companies as well. Bolt and Klarna were the latest this week. I spoke to Sequoia partner Michelle Bailey about this yesterday. She says Sequoia's advice doesn't always mean job cuts. So it could mean less R&D, more of a focus on some of the core products. And some startups, she says, should actually keep their foot on the gas pedal right now. She says the playing field has gotten tougher, but that could also be an opportunity for some of these companies. Back to you. And yeah, I mean, so that, that I guess remains the question. Is this something that is specific to this market or not? It's interesting. They mentioned some of the historical uh, analogies. You've got Google, you've got Uber that was really built in a downturn. So they say we've they've been through cycles like this before. It can actually be a great time to, to build a company if you're disciplined, you cut costs, 
And there are some really big examples of that that they point to and we're also investors in. Yeah, I think back to how the cloud kind of emerged from the financial crisis and all of that. Kate, thanks so much. We appreciated our Kate Rooney reporting. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.